0: Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hi and welcome back. Before he died, King Mosiah took steps to put his affairs in order and he made some changes to put the Nephite nation on an entirely new course. And Mosiah was only 63 when he died, so maybe he had some sort of premonition of his death. It Seems more likely to me that he knew he was dying the same way we know now. He probably had some sort of a terminal disease. But let's walk through what he does. We're going to be covering Mosiah chapters 28 and 29 today, and Let me know what you think. Also, if you haven't subscribed to the channel yet, I would be glad if you did. Likes and comments are also very much appreciated. Normally, when a king dies, one of his sons replaces him on the throne. No muss, no fuss. It's a smooth transition. But King Mosiah's sons had no interest in being king. Instead, they were traveling throughout the land seeking to fix the damage that they had done, along with Alma the Younger, which we talked about in the last video. Now, before we go any further, we should answer our last video's trivia question, which was, what were the names of King Mosiah's sons? The answer to this is given in chapter 27, which we skipped right over last time. It's when the narrator is talking about the group who accompanied Alma the younger as he went about teaching the people. Here's verse 34. And four of them were the sons of Mosiah, and their names were Ammon and Aaron and Amner and Himni. These were the names of the sons of Mosiah. It's interesting that he lists Ammon before Aaron because Aaron is the one who, as we'll see in chapter 29, is expected to be the next king. But those are the names of Mosiah's sons, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, And they play a big role in the first half of the book of Alma. Mosiah 27 ended with Mosiah's newly converted sons preaching with Alma to the people of Zarahemla. Afterward, they, and a few others, went to King Mosiah and asked if they could go to the land of Nephi and preach the gospel to the Lamanites. Their reasoning was that if the Lamanites could hear the gospel, it might cure them of their hatred for the Nephites, and there would be continual peace in the land. And also, they wanted the Lamanites to have an opportunity to repent of their sins and be saved, just as they had been saved. Here's verse 3. Now, they were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, For they could not bear that any human soul should perish, yea, even the very thoughts that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. Mosiah's sons pled with him for several days. Eventually, they wore him down, and King Mosiah prayed to the Lord, Would sending his sons to preach to the Lamanites be a good idea, or would it end in disaster? He received an answer. And the Lord said unto Mosiah, Let them go up, for many shall believe on their words, and they shall have eternal life, and I will deliver thy sons out of the hands of the Lamanites. So King Mosiah gave his approval, and his sons departed towards the land of Nephi. Mormon, the narrator, promises that he will eventually tell us about their mission. And he does so beginning in Alma chapter 17. But for now the narrative stays with the king. With his sons Preaching the gospel of the Lamanites, Mosiah had no successor to replace him on the throne. Mosiah was not an old man. He was only 62 years old, but he would live for one more year and die at 63. Mormon does not tell us why he wanted to resolve the issue of finding a successor so quickly. Normally, if you were a 62-year-old king, you'd figure you'd have a few years to sort things out, but somehow Mosiah knew that he didn't have much time. As I said above, if life then was like life now, the way you know you're going to die soon is if you have a terminal illness. Maybe he did. So after his sons departed to the land of Nephi, Mosiah immediately began putting his affairs in order. Not only was Mosiah the king, but he was the record keeper. He had been entrusted with several sacred records. So his first step in preparing for death was to take the records which he had been keeping and deliver them to Alma the Younger along with the, quote, interpreters, which allowed Mosiah and other seers to translate languages. He instructed Alma to keep a record of the people, as he had done since the days of Nephi, and to hand this history down to another when the time came. This collection of records given to Alma by Mosiah contained the original brass plates, which Nephi took from Laban in Jerusalem. It also included the plates of Nephi, both large and small. In other words, he gave him both the secular and the spiritual records of the people. It's interesting to me that Mosiah was willing to give these records to Alma, seemingly without any reservations whatsoever. Based on the available timeline, it was only one to eight years earlier that Alma was actively seeking to destroy the church. Why did King Mosiah have such confidence in him now? Honestly, he seemed to have more trust in Alma than he did in his own sons. In chapter 29, he takes precautionary measures in case his sons return to their wicked ways. What made him so confident that Alma's conversion had been genuine and permanent? I don't have an answer, but it makes me wonder. We might also wonder why Alma didn't join the sons of Mosiah on the mission to the Lamanites. And I won't go into it in detail today, but the date stamps in the Book of Mormon indicate that Alma already had kids. What do I mean by that? Well, his youngest son was in moral trouble not too long after this. And so Alma was a dad with kids, and that's probably why he couldn't go. In addition to the records we talked about a second ago, Mosiah also gave Alma his translation of the 24 gold plates that Limhi's people found while they were searching for the city of Zarahemla. Mosiah translated these plates to satisfy the curiosity of his people they were, quote, desirous beyond measure to know concerning those people who had been destroyed. He translated them using the interpreters mentioned above. But what are these interpreters? Mormon, the narrator, explains in verse 13. And now he translated them by means of those two stones which were fastened into the two rims of a bow. Now these things were prepared from the beginning and were handed down from generation to generation for the purpose of interpreting languages. And they have been kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord that he should discover to every creature who should possess the land the iniquities and abominations of his people. And whosoever has these things is called seer, after the manner of old times. When Moroni first told Joseph Smith about the golden plates buried in nearby Camorra, he told Joseph, quote, that there were two stones and silver bows, and these stones, fastened to a breastplate, constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim, deposited with the plates. And the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. We can only speculate whether the interpreters used by Joseph were the same as those used by Mosiah, and while we're speculating, we acknowledge our modern prophets and apostles as, quote, prophets, seers, and revelators. If possessing these stones constituted being a seer in ancient times, do the modern brethren have something similar? Do they have something that allows a prophet to, quote, discover the iniquities and abominations of his people? After translating the record, Mosiah shared it with his people. It summarized the history of a group from when they left the Old World at the time of the Tower of Babel, until their eventual destruction in the Americas. Mosiah's subjects were happy that the mystery had finally been solved, but they mourned the destruction of the fallen civilization. Mormon promised to share their story with us later, and we'll read it when we reach the Book of Ether. Okay, now we move into Mosiah 29. I I said a minute ago it seems that Mosiah seemed to be managing a terminal health condition. After giving the holy records and relics to Alma the Younger, He next addressed the issue of who would replace him on the throne. He asked his people who they would like to be their king. They responded that they wanted Mosiah's son Aaron to be their king, but unfortunately Aaron was away teaching the gospel to the Lamanites in the land of Nephi. So, quote, the king could not confer the kingdom upon him. Concern for a successor is evidence that Mosiah knew his death was imminent. Otherwise, he might simply have waited for Aaron to return. But even if time had permitted Mosiah to wait for Aaron to come back, Aaron flat out refused to succeed his father on the throne. Quote, neither were any of the sons of Mosiah willing to take upon them the kingdom. Refusing to be king might seem a little crazy. People usually aspire to be king. We have expressions like king for a day. So why didn't Mosiah's sons want to be king? Well, for starters, they wanted to preach the gospel of the Lamanites. Also, Mosiah didn't do much of a job of showcasing or selling the benefits of being a king. For King Mosiah, or his father King Benjamin, before him, there was none of the wine, women, and song that King Noah had, along with the crew of priests telling him how great he was. Instead, Mosiah and Benjamin had to plow their own fields, grow their own food, and also try to serve the people and resolve all their problems, and also to be accountable before God for anything their people did. In any case, since he didn't have a successor, Mosiah restructured the entire Nephite government. He wrote an epistle to his subjects announcing the change. The tone of his letter reads more like a stream of consciousness than it does a legal document, as though he were still working out the details in his mind while he was writing the letter, but perhaps this was just his style of writing. He started his letter by discussing why he didn't want someone to take Aaron's place on the throne. This was Aaron, quote, to whom the kingdom doth rightly belong. Replacing Aaron on the throne might result in chaos and conflict. He explained in verse 7, and now if there should be another appointed in his stead, behold, I fear there would rise contentions among you. And who knoweth but what my son to whom the king doth belong should turn to be angry and draw away a part of this people after him, which would cause wars and contentions among you, which would be the cause of shedding much blood and perverting the ways of the Lord, yea, and destroy the souls of many people. Although that was just a hypothetical situation, it was realistic, and Mosiah acknowledged this, saying, now let us be wise and look forward to these things and do that which will make for the peace of this people. Mosiah then proposed a solution he would remain king for the remainder of his life. But going forward, instead of having a king, the government would consist of wise men, selected and elected to be judges over the people. And these would judge the people according to God's commandments. However, Mosiah acknowledged that kings were efficient and the ideal form of government in the absence of corruption. He used the reign of King Benjamin as an example Therefore, if it were possible that you could have just men to be your kings who would establish the laws of God and judge this people according to the commandments, yea, if you could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did for this people, I say unto you, if this could always be the case, then it would be expedient that you should always have kings to rule over you. But there was no guarantee that kings would always be just, and he presented the disastrous reign of King Noah as an example. Verse 18, "'Yea, remember King Noah, his wickedness and his abominations, and also the wickedness and abominations of his people. Behold, what great destruction did come upon them, and also because of their iniquities they were brought into bondage.'" Now, we should pause for a minute to appreciate how big of a change it was to not have a king. For more than 500 years, the Nephites had been ruled by kings, they were probably unaware that other options even existed. When Alma's group broke away from King Noah, they didn't have a king, but they were small enough that they didn't need an official government. So what kind of system should take the place of having a king? What Mosiah proposed was a system of judges. People would be able to vote leaders into office and remove wicked or incompetent ones. Furthermore, as we will see next time in Alma chapter 1, the Nephite citizens were allowed or perhaps required to also ratify the laws used by the judges to govern them. Thus, the laws and the leadership would reflect the collective desires of the people. They could have exactly the type of government that they wanted. And this was one of the system's greatest strengths. Mosiah explained in verse 26. Now, it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right. But it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. Therefore, this shall ye observe and make it your law, to do your business by the voice of the people. And if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Yea, and this is the time that he will visit you with great destruction, even as he has hitherto visited this land. Mosiah's people received his letter, approved of his reasoning, and welcomed the new form of government. Although it seems they had a motive that Mosiah's letter did not address. Verse 38 says, They relinquished their desires for a king and became exceedingly anxious that every man should have an equal chance throughout all the land. Yea, and every man expressed a willingness to answer for his own sins. So they were willing to answer for their own sins instead of the king being responsible. But the real reason for the excitement was the first one given in verse 38. That every man should have an equal chance. Mosiah was doing away with royalty. Anyone, even those of low birth or lowly station, could be elected to a government position. The royal family was stepping down. Now, as we'll see... In the next episode or two, there were Nephites who already had large followings, but because they didn't believe in God, they'd been forced to dissent and be among the Lamanites. Mosiah's policy changes were a double whammy. Not only could these Nephite dissenters return and live among their own people, they could bring their followers with them and run for office. But we'll talk about that in our next video. Mosiah's people rejoiced, quote, and they did wax strong in love towards Mosiah. Yea, they did esteem him more than any other man, for they did not look upon him as a tyrant who was seeking for gain, yea, for that lucre which doth corrupt the soul, for he had not exacted riches of them, neither had he delighted in the shedding of blood, but he had established peace in the land, and he had granted unto his people that they should be delivered from all manner of bondage. Therefore they did esteem him yea, exceedingly beyond measure. Elections were held throughout the land. Judges were chosen with Alma the younger being elected as the first chief judge. He had also been ordained by his father as the high priest of all the land. He exercised righteous judgment and there was continual peace through the land. Although, as we'll see in the next chapter, the continual peace was not without problems. And then Mosiah died at the age of 63 and Alma father of Alma the Younger, died at the age of 82, and with Mosiah's death, the reign of kings over the Nephites ended. But although kings were no more, the notions of kings and royal bloodlines seemed pretty deeply ingrained in Nephite thinking. In the book of Alma, we'll see several Nephite factions attempting, unsuccessfully, to throw out the system of judges and put a king back on the throne. Also, although government positions were no longer officially hereditary, we see the sons of judges, high priests, and generals succeeding their fathers more often than not. And what about Alma the Younger? He must have been a remarkable, an incredible individual. Less than a decade after his miraculous conversion, maybe as little as a year afterward, the timestamps are too infrequent for us to know for sure, he was appointed high priest over the church and also elected to be chief judge over the land. To be elected to public office, he must have already been a reasonably popular person. Perhaps his rebellious past wasn't widely known. Mosiah 27.10 says, he did go about secretly with the sons of Mosiah, but on the flip side, although it says his efforts were secret, it says he had been a great hinderment to the church's progress. The next video, and for that matter, the longest book in the Book of Mormon, is about Alma. And it's an incredible ride, so be sure to check it out. Before we go, let's do the trivia question. There are three men in the Book of Mormon who are referred to as antichrists. What are their names? And for bonus points, where do we find them? What are the names of the three antichrists in the Book of Mormon? And we will see you next time.